Father, we give thanks. We give thanks for the vitality of what it is like for human beings to want to get better at doing what you called us to do. So we give thanks. We sense your presence and ask, Lord, that this will continue and grow more and more so the conversations become more life-giving and the effects become transformative. It's in your name we pray. First of all, I'm preaching. Uh, you guys are familiar with the term bait and switch. This really is a bait and switch. This is not just about preaching. This is about the preacher. Um, I, I wonder what would happen if we actually would have uh, um, advertised this, the festival of life sacrifice, the, fest the festival of the cruciform life. Um, I don't think you would have shown up. Well, you may have shown up, but you certainly wouldn't have come through the storm that we had yesterday. Um, I walked out of the chapel last night. Um, I was walking with my wife, Angie. Um, and she said, are you okay? And I said, no, not really. Because I was watching the weather, watching the storms, and you think, what happens if you throw a party and nobody shows up? Um, not only did you show up, but God showed up last night. Lenny, thanks. He was here this morning. And may he continue. May we be blessed by our time together this morning. Um, Bengal was a, a great influencer of John Wesley. Listen to his words. Apply the whole of ourselves to the text and apply the whole of the text to ourselves. Um, if you've read any of Wesley's uh, writings, that's often as an inscription in the, in the beginning of it. Bengal worded these as a statement, as an exhortation, with us as the active agents in the interpretive process, that we are the ones to apply the text to ourselves. Um, however, what might happen if we actually rewrite this statement just a little bit, apply the whole of ourselves to the text, and the text will apply itself wholly to us? That's the approach I want to take this morning in the in, in the moments that I have with you, is asking the question, what happens when we transform that, that question into something different? Because it's more of a promise that is now relying on the Holy Spirit to do his work. The Bible ceases to be an object that we can take hold of. Rather, it is the word that takes hold of us. Now, many of you may have grown up in church, going to VBS and Sunday school every Sunday. I did not. Um, I was captured and captivated by the word when I was 25 years old. And the passage of scripture that transformed my life was the boringest passage of scripture in the New Testament. And if we actually took a vote, you'd, try, you'd probably be thinking through, and if you began with Matthew, you wouldn't have to get past Matthew chapter 1 and knowing that's the boringest passage of scripture. That's the one that grabbed my heart and changed me forever. So if the boringest passage can transform a person's heart, what happens when you get some, to some of the deeper, uh, richer things that are God speaking directly to us? I, I want us to cease looking at the text as a container that holds information that we are to take out. 
rather than the Word truly becoming the Spirit-born agent that's going to transform us from who we are to who He wants us to be. I am a, by training, an exegete. I have a BA in Bible. I have a master's in Old Testament, two as a matter of fact, and a PhD in New Testament interpretation. Um, I am a Bible scientist by training. I love doing Greek exegesis. I actually like doing Greek textual work. I am a Greek geek. but I'm a lover of the word, and I love his church. Many of you pastors have given me the opportunity to come into your church and to teach. And what I love is that the church is hungry for the word of God now like it never has been before. Uh, I go in and teach, and people are just saying, I I want more. See, in this room not too long ago, about a month ago, Beginning at 7.30 in the morning, there was men's Bible studies from all over the Maritimes that gathered, and and a day like yesterday. I mean, there was an ice storm, and 65 or 70 men showed up at 7.30 in the morning to listen to the word being taught. And at 12.30 in the afternoon, they kind of looked at their watches and said, is that it? Is that all you got? They were hungry for the word. God is on the move. And he wants to ingrain his word into people's lives and to change them. And he wants to use preachers to do that. I am a, if you will, I am a Bible scientist by training. That's what I've learned to do. But I am not really a scientist as much as I try to be an artist. Uh, And I'm not really an artist as much as I'm hoping and praying that the Spirit would take up residence in the words that are always shared. So we can talk about science, and, I, and I've got all kinds of PowerPoints. The PowerPoints, the, the lectures are going to be made available to you. But would you allow me to do a bit of a move from science to the art to the spirit? I've got three words for you. So it, just kind of ignore the PowerPoints for a few minutes if you can. I've got three words that I want to share with you this morning. It's how do we move from being a preacher to a better preacher? How do we move from being a Christian that's a preacher to a better Christian that is a preacher? Three words. First word, distant. This is a major problem in interpretation. We are vastly distant from the world in which the scriptures were written and originally given. Vastly different. As a matter of fact, we almost have no lines of continuity between what it was like to live in the first century versus the 21st century. My doctoral dissertation is on what it means to live in an oral culture in the first century. So what is it like when you are preaching and teaching to people where 95% of the people around you are illiterate? I didn't say ignorant, I said illiterate. Because many people in the first century actually had large passages of Scripture memorized. They were not ignorant of the Scriptures, but they were illiterate. They could not read, 
and most could not write because they didn't have 20 years of schooling like we do to be able to get that training. There's a huge difference between an oral culture and the written culture in which we live today, a vast difference. So what was it like when in the first century, in a worship service, it would not be unusual for an entire letter, the entire letter of Galatians would have been read in one sitting. As a matter of fact, most scholars actually think that the Gospel of Mark may have been used as a passage that was read before a baptismal service. So 16 chapters of Mark would have been read. It would have been your, your confession before you were immersed on Easter Sunday. Um, we were people of the word. We're very distant from that culture. And so if you want to become a good proclaimer of what it was like to live in that culture, you need to learn and to study what it was like to live in the first century. I, I teach you a class right now on Acts and Romans. And the students in there, put, put your hands up if you're in my Acts and Romans class. You see the hands that go up? These kids hate me right now. Because <laughs> they are currently working on an assignment on the culture and the history of the first century. It's, it's a love-hate though, right? Love, hate? No, it's a hate. It's a hate. <laughs> but, but they did get an email last night. Did you guys amen that? They got an email last night. It's not due Friday. It's due next Tuesday. Oh. I know what it's like to live in the 21st century, not the first. They are working on that. There's no way you can be a good exegete of Scripture unless you understand the first century world. You just can't. we're so distant from that. That's a problem for you as a preacher. It's a problem for me as a preacher. How do we bridge that gap? These two horizons, the horizons of what the text meant versus what the text means. I, I wrote this down, and I really wondered whether or not I want to say it out loud. So preaching is the result of good sound exegesis. But if we limit scripture to only mean what it meant, we will have very little to say. That's my way of saying this is absolutely essential. Good, sound exegesis is absolutely necessary. But to be able to grasp what it was like in the first century, if we wait till we have it fully fleshed out and know everything, we will have very little to say on Sunday. My friends, it is a distance that is vast. Distance. Story. His story. We live in a, a postmodern world which is a world of story, of telling stories, of relating stories, of narrative. That, that's the world we live in. And when I say the story world, I mean the meta-narrative of God. We often take so many passages out of context, and we understand this little bit, and we are now living in a world we need to understand the meta-narrative of God, all the way from creation to recreation, from Genesis to Revelation the meta-narrative. The meta-narrative is not just you being informed of a story. The meta-narrative is understanding the context in which you can present 
another worldview because the world does not understand the meta-narrative of God. The world does not understand God's story of fall, redemption, revelation of Jesus Christ, climaxed in the gospel. The story is not known to this world. Um, interesting conversation um, yesterday, um, sharing that in the greater St. John area, about 130,000 people, and less than 10,000 people go to church on Sunday morning. Do the math. And not only that, that if less than 10% of the people in the St. John area go to church, very few of the people in your church know the meta narrative, correct? So this story is not known by hardly anybody. But the story is not just telling a history, it's actually painting a whole new reality. Appearances, my friends, can be very deceiving. And so you're not just being asked to preach a story. You're asked to, being, to preach eschatologically because appearances are deceiving. You're being asked to portray a picture of reality that is beyond what we can see and hear. It is a reality that is grounded in the word, is deeply entrenched in your heart, and you can't do anything except declare it. So we need to preach eschatologically. That's a hard call. You've got to create a picture of something that people can't see, but you know is just as real as what they're looking at. You need to change their value system about what you're doing. So not only are we distant in the story, but the story is not just his story. The story is also our story. Look at the number of times as you're reading through Scripture, you find, uh, for example, the end of the book of Joshua. In the end of the book of Joshua, there is a recounting of the covenant commitment that God is making to Israel. And he talks about the calling of Abraham, the calling of Isaac, and talking about them, them, them. And then all of a sudden, during the time of the transition to the Passover, you hear this. Now it was you that was there passing through the waters. All of a sudden, that story became their story. Read through the New Testament, especially when you come to Pentecost, and you find out that story that became their story becomes your story. We need to preach this as if it's God's word to us. So it's not just staying in the ancient world what, what it meant. It means bringing it to bear right here and right now what does it mean in our cultural context right here, right now? It is us engaging in the missio day, in the mission of God. The mission of God. Um, you probably hear that as maybe Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples. That's Matthew's mission. But don't forget, all four Gospels have their own mission statement. Matthew and Mark are very close. Mark is in Mark 16. Go and preach and baptize them. Luke also has his own mission in Luke 24, where he tells them that they must learn the scriptures according to what's been revealed and then proclaim them that their eyes might be open and their heart might be transformed. John also has his own Missio Dei, his mission 
John's mission is found in chapter 20. John's mission is very clear. As I have been sent, so I send you. The mission of the disciples is the mission of the church today. And there is a direct line of continuity between the choosing the election of Israel and the choosing and the election of the apostles and the choosing and the election of the people of God. My friends, we are them. They are us. And we need to be proclaiming a word that is just as clear, just as concise, and just as transformative. It is distant, and it's a hard task, but it's story story that's so vitally important to grasp what is, what is going on, this meta-narrative that will help us to preach eschatologically. Not only is it distant, not only is it story, can I give you one more word? Read. Read. Read the scripture. Many of the Wesleyan churches are actually going through what's called a community Bible experience, where in 40 days leading up to Easter, we will read the New Testament. And I've got a a lot of pushback, not just from students here on campus, but from other pastors that are doing it. And here's the word. It's too much reading. It's too much reading. I don't have a lot of time to talk. But I don't know what to do with that when I'm being asked to spend too much time in the Word. I just don't know what to do with that. I I, I don't have a response to that. We must be people of the Word. We must be shaped by the Word. We must read the Word and take it in. It must be food for the journey. It, it, It must be. If we don't, What do we have to share? We have nothing but the word. John Wesley said, I am a man of one book. Uh, Liar, liar, patents on fire. He wanted all of his pastors to read everything they could in multiple languages. Thank you. Greek, Hebrew, all of his lay pastors (laughs) were asked to learn Greek and Hebrew. Um, That was the expectation. Read. Since the time of Rembrandt, no one can possess all the literature of the day. There is so much Christian literature, so much literature itself coming out, no one can possess it all. But you've got to make a shot at it at least. Um, I, I, I do spend a lot of time talking to all of our incoming freshmen. I, I love spending time with the freshmen. Um, And it's not unusual for students to come in 17 years old, 18 years old. They're sitting in my office. And if you come to see my office, it is wall, floor to wall, all the way around books. And there's not enough room on the shelf, so they're sitting on the floor. They're everywhere. And they come into my office, and here's what they say. I really don't like to read. (laughs) You just called my baby ugly. This is not a conference on preaching. 
It's a conference on the preacher. And you can't give what you don't have. Keith Drury has been a mentor of a number of people, I know in this room even, and in mine too. I was actually his boss, and he was my mentor at the same time. That's always an interesting relationship to, to fathom. He is a brilliant thinker. He has written more than I've read, and I've read a lot. He told me when he first began teaching at university, he thought he had a lot to give. And he taught for about five weeks. And he said, Dave, I got nothing else to give. I've told them everything I know. And as a pastor, if you are not a voracious reader, I mean a voracious reader, and you figure out how to do that, whether you want to listen on iPods or uh, uh, podcasts, whether you want to listen as you drive books on tape. Um, that, that dates me to books on tape. Sorry. You have to be a voracious consumer. You do. And it's got to be on a multiplicity of subjects. I want you to read everything you can on Bible. Everything. Um, I want you to read everything you can on exegesis. I want you to read everything you can on theology. I want you to read everything you can on all the social and sociological issues that are going on in the day. Um, that's my passion for you because you can't give what you don't have. You're so distant from that culture. Um, in exegesis, I spend about 15 hours in a course teaching about the distance between that horizon and our horizon. So I thought it would be foolish for me even to begin that dialogue. You know how vast it is. Story and culture, how vital it is, how vital it is for you to understand the meta-narrative of God, and it's your ability then to be able to share this new reality that God does have a plan, not just for your life, but God has a plan for all creation. And he's asking whether or not you would like to participate in that. Can you paint this mission of God that he's actually left heaven to come here? And pastors and students, we think of the church calendar um, as often a waste of time. Incarnation is the beginning of the church calendar. The incarnation then goes to where we are right now in Lent, preparing for Easter. But we think of jumping from incarnation to Easter and then we're done. That's far from the story because that's not the climax of the church calendar. The climax of the church calendar is actually Pentecost. When the Spirit comes upon you, upon me, upon us, and changes us radically and you know when you've been at a place where the Spirit has descended. Am I right? Um, how about if I take you to a place? It's a preaching moment, and I'm, I haven't asked for permission, so I'm actually asking in advance for forgiveness when somebody's name is, is set out. I was sitting in a church service about a year and a half ago, 
and the church in which I was in was going through some desperate moments. Moral failure is not something that we like talking about. But I was sitting in a church, and the pastor began to preach. My pastor, Brent Ingersoll. And my wife reached out her hand to me, and she said, I've heard him speak a lot, but God has spoken to him this week, and we are now here to listen to him. Listen to him through the pastor. Here were Angie's words to my wife. I can really get involved here. And God is speaking to the pastor. So, Steve and F, I don't, I don't see where you are right now. Way in the back. Thanks for last night preparing us to be ready. Lenny, thank you so much for talking about what it's like to be a listener because you guys know that probably one of the best passages of Scripture is in Psalm chapter 40, where you hear these words. The psalmist David writes, Sacrifice and burnt offerings you did not desire. Well, yes, he did. Read Leviticus. You probably had devotions in Levit Leviticus this morning, right? You know sacrifice and burnt offerings he wants. But he says this, My ears you have pierced. And that's not, that's not saying that we all go out and pierce our ears. My ears, the psalmist says, you have dug out. You have carved these ears out of my head. Pastors, you know that your parishioners are spiritual blockheads. They have no ears. They can't hear. Next Sunday, what I'd love for you to do is to imagine the congregation that's in front of you. They are all SpongeBob's. They have no ears. And your, your job is to prepare SpongeBob's to hear when they have no ears. You can't do that on your own. That's got to be the work of the Spirit. There is the science of exegesis, and there is the art form of preaching, but we leave it all up to the Spirit. He is the one that will change us in our study. He is the one that will change us behind the pulpit. And he is the one that will fashion ears, listening ears on people's heads. And you will no longer see them as SpongeBob's, but you will see them as men and women broken. Not only will you hear the word, they will hear the word. And it ceases to be about you, and it becomes totally about him. If any of you follow Bill Hybels and his leadership summit, do you remember four years ago, I think it was, five years ago, he did a, 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 one of his talks on from here to there. Do you remember that? When we got done, I thought, you know what? He is so good at that. But in my mind, it's not from here to there. It's from here to him. That's what our job is is to take the word, lay it out, and to realize how distant it is from the ancient world. How distant. How, but we have this story, this meta-narrative in which we need to portray a whole new reality. And the only way to do that is to preach eschatologically.
you become men and women of one book. You are so saturated by scripture that it comes out of you at the most surprising moments. And maybe we think about this integration of devotional reading and sermon reading and spiritual formation, and it all takes place simultaneously. Be transformed by the word. I'd love for you to do me a favor. Stand up and tell the person next to you, what is the book of the Bible that you're currently reading? And uh, how is it actually transforming your life? And the reason being, I'm passing the mic now to Peter Reed. So go ahead and tell, what book are you reading? What is your next book? Uh, Can I have your attention, please, for just a minute? If you have been seated, if you have been seated, would you stand back up for just a minute, please? I'd like you to take about a minute or a minute and a half and introduce yourself or shake hands with someone who does not belong to the same denomination you belong to and say something nice to them. Would you do that? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your your cooperation. (laughs) Wonderful conversation. Finding a seat would be a nice idea. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much for the conversation. It's good. I was asked if I would say a word or brief introduction about Peter Reed, which I'll be happy to do in just a moment. This event has looked and smelled and tasted pretty much like a Wesleyan deal. You're in a Wesleyan institution, and everybody you've heard talk belongs to that tribe up till now, but this is not a Wesleyan deal. This is a kingdom deal, right? I had the privilege of being invited by Dr. Smith, who I think was some of the genius behind this whole thing, to be a part of the original steering committee meeting that got together to talk about this and was incredibly pleased from the sound of the first gun to find out it wasn't just our tribe that was in on this deal. It was our wonderful friends of the Atlantic Baptist Convention and a few other speckled birds. The largest... Evangelical group in Atlantic Canada is Atlantic Baptist Convention, right? They're the big, they're our big brother, and we're pleased to share fellowship with them. You know, I'm 60-something years old, and I've grown up around the Western Church my whole life. I grew up believing our mission in life was to get the Baptist sanctified. <laughs> I've now... <laughs> Now, having been in my current position for a while, the biggest job is to get the Wesleyan sanctified, actually. 
actually fully devoted followers of Christ is pretty attractive on us all, don't you think? I was at a church in my district this past Sunday where the pastor who is near retirement said, I made some reference to this event, and he said, you know, years ago when Peter Reed was just a little boy, he sat in my Sunday school class in a wee little tiny rural church in Nova Scotia. He's no longer sitting in a Sunday school classroom of a wee little tiny church in Nova Scotia. Through the awareness of God's good people in the convention and his own skill and calling to ministry, he has been now more than once elected as the executive minister of the Atlantic Baptist Convention. It's my great joy to present to you my friend and fellow laborer in the gospel, Dr. Peter Reed. Now, I'll say this with fully with tongue-in-cheek as the token Baptist here uh, on, on this. You know, I've been hanging around with the Baptists now for over 30 years, and there are still some people who think I'm the token Wesleyan. So, <clears throat> so I, I guess I'm a little confused this morning, but I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad for this event, and I'm glad for the collaboration. And uh, we, we work together last summer to bring Ed Stetzer here, and I just think the more we can do together as part of the kingdom of God, uh, the more we will see God move in Atlantic Canada. It's so necessary. I just want to, I'm going to, some of these slides I'm going to go through really quickly because uh, most of this you know, but I do want to talk a little bit about First of all, interpreting the congregation and then the culture as well. And, uh, <clears throat> and so much of this has been said. Steve said it last night talking about familiarity. Lenny said it this morning talking about connecting and how important that is. I don't think you can preach if you don't know and love your people. Uh, you, don't, you don't have the right to preach if you don't know and love your people. And I think we earned that right. I think as we, as we empathize and walk with people uh, and spend time with people, I, I, I spent 30-plus years as a pastor, and I don't know much. But one of the things I know is that if you walk with people in the high moments and the low moments of their lives, uh, you will earn the right to speak into their lives. If you've sat beside the bedside of someone who's dying or if you've sat with a couple whose baby's just been born prematurely and don't know if that baby's even going to survive the night, and then the baby survives, but there's been severe damage, and now you walk with that couple as they live and breathe and weep and struggle to try and understand where is God in the midst of that. Uh, you, will, you will find a place that will impact you and will impact your preaching. Uh, I, probably one of the people that I've discovered over the years that has deeply impacted my life is Frederick Beekner. Let me just give you a quote from Beekner that, that I think ought to impact preachers. It impacted me when I first heard it, and it still does today. It his words often haunt me and trouble me. And uh, he's a Presbyterian and didn't pastor a long time, really. 
is more of an author than a pastor. And so this story, of course, is about a preacher, and he's wearing robes, so it's probably in the Presbyterian church, and it's probably one of those little pulpits that you see that gets up really high. There's a lot of stairs up to the, to the pulpit. He said, the preacher climbs the steps to the pulpit with his sermon in his hand. He hikes his black robe up at the knee so he will not trip over it on the way up. His mouth is a little dry. He has cut himself shaving. He feels as if he swallowed an anchor. If it weren't for the honor of the thing, he would just as soon be somewhere else. In the front pews, the old ladies turn up their hearing aids, and a young mother slips her six-year-old a lifesaver and a magic marker. A college sophomore home from vacation who is there because he was dragged there slumps forward with his chin in his hand. The vice president of a bank who twice that week has seriously contemplated suicide places his hymnal in the rack. A pregnant girl feels life stir inside her. A high school math teacher who for 20 years has managed to keep his homosexuality a secret for the most part even from himself creases the order of service down the center with his thumbnail and tucks it under his knee. The preacher pulls the cord that turns on the lectern light and deals out his note cards like a riverboat gambler. The stakes have never been higher. Everybody knows the things he's told them before, but who knows this time, out of the silence, what he will tell them. Let him tell them the truth. Preaching matters, folks. Preaching matters. I don't know how else to say it, but to say you have to be with the people. It's the only way you have to be with the people. I'm not going to say a whole lot more about in essence, about interpreting the congregation. What I'm going to do is talk a little bit about interpreting the culture. And the reason I say that is to say your congregation reflects the culture, whether you like it or not. When I was a young preacher, I used to say, oh, if I could just have a New Testament church. I got to tell you, the New Testament church had as many problems as your church does. We sort of glamorize it. And culture always impacts the church in every generation. Your church has been impacted by culture, whether we like it or not. Let me just say, how do we reach out to this present age without selling out to the present age? And that's, that's always the age-old problem. First of all, I think as preachers, interpreting culture also means critiquing culture. It doesn't mean we just sort of carte blanche, uh, accept everything in our culture. It also doesn't mean that we become angry preachers and stand up and yell at the culture. A movie I watched recently was Sean Penn, and uh, the government is trying to, to stifle and, and muzzle uh, sort of the average person. And it's tearing his marriage apart. And, and in the movie... He and his wife are arguing because she wants to give up on the fight. She just feels like it's hopeless. And he just starts shouting at her. And he said, if I shout louder than you, am I right? He said, 
Because that's what the government is doing. They're shouting louder. And you know, some preachers think if I shout louder, I don't know about, when I was growing up, there were some preachers who thought if they just yelled a little louder, their preaching would be better. Hello? I got news for you. Some people need to quit shouting. I think the pastor prophetically calls people to be shaped by the word and by the gospel of the kingdom. And that's why we critique culture. There are, there's lots in our culture that is idolatrous. And it's easy to get sucked in. It is possible to be in a consumer culture and not be enslaved by consumerism. But it's hard. It's hard even for the preacher. Now, let's just talk a, a little bit about it, exegeting the culture. I, this is just, I, I think that every pastor in every church ought to be missionaries. Do you know, when I was young and attending this institution, we thought it was absolutely normal for missionaries to learn the language of the people, to learn something about the culture of the people that they were trying to reach out to. It, we just thought that was, that was great, that was normal. We've forgotten that in North America, we now have to be missionaries. We have to learn the language and understand the people to whom God has called us and understand something of their culture. And some of this, so much of this you know already, and I'm just going to go quickly through some. I'll, I might camp on a couple of points very, very briefly. We live in an in a age where we have more and more households but smaller families, and most people don't even know their neighbors. Community is not defined by neighborhood anymore. And I could say more about that. Uh, it's very much the norm in North America for both men and women to work outside the home. It puts all kinds of pressures on the home and on the family and on church. People are far more, far more mobile. They travel for work. They travel for pleasure and recreation, but they also relocate a lot for work. And then we have a phenomenon in Atlantic Canada where people actually live here and work in Alberta, and they fly home every two to three weeks. That's just weird, right? We, we, that... In previous generations, that would just seem so weird. The rate of divorce is so much higher. It is fracturing families. number of single people and single parent families is very high, and I think that's true all across North America. Uh, longer work hours. The great thing about technology, it's shortened up the work week, right? Uh, longer work hours, a frantic pace of life, life, increasingly fragmented lives. We're living in a network society the importance of place is secondary to the importance of the flow of relationships. You know, there's a way to tap into our culture and find out where's the flow of relationships in terms of, of where is community being built. And it's often around networks and affinities, not around place, right? So I expect in, this, in a room this size, there would be a hockey affinity group. There are subgroups of that because I've already heard Philadelphia mentioned. I can't believe it, but I've heard Philadelphia mentioned here. You know, but you could talk about the Montreal Canadiens or those of us who still dare to even breathe the name the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? So we have affinity already, right? And community is being developed around affinities and, and the Internet and uh, texting and tweeting and all Facebook, all these things help promote that. It's, it's very much the world in which we live. 
because of technology and the internet, there is no one place where choices are being controlled, and this sense of community is often disconnected from locality and geography. We need to be aware of that. Um, I mentioned the, the, the affinity in networks. The core value of our culture has moved. So in modernity, the core value of the culture was progress. In our culture, the core value is choice. That's a consumer culture. We need to be aware of that, folks. That's, that's the world that your people live in. Uh, pleasure lies at the heart of consumerism. It's ultimately narcissistic. Let me just sort of summarize this by saying society is more mobile, more urban. Even rural areas are more urban than they once were. More individualistic, more critical than previous generations, and more suspicious of authority, which already makes the preacher at a disadvantage because people are suspicious of you if you're in any place of authority. What is the challenge? The challenge is that we're living in a post-Christian culture that the culture of Christianity in Canada no longer shapes society. The Christian story is no longer at the heart of the nation. Do you know that in the 1950s in Canada, that in the Star Weekly, now there are only a handful of people in this room old enough to even remember the Star Weekly, they would list the top ten preachers in Canada and print their sermons. That was the 1950s in Canada. I was born in the 1950s. Now, try that today. People lack even the rudimentary truths of the Bible and of Christianity. Most of the people in your community did not grow up going to Sunday school, learning the stories of the Bible. And I hear preachers stand up and say, well, you remember the story of Jonah. And people have a blank look on their face because they don't remember the story of Jonah. They don't know that, that story. They don't know the metaphor and all that, that lies behind it. We live in a pluralistic, multicultural, multi-faith society. Religion, too, in this culture is a matter of choice. Decisions are made on the basis of what works and what makes you happy, not on what's right or wrong. But what is it that works for you? What is it that makes you happy? Now, how do we preach in this kind of a postmodern world? Uh, I just think that, as I said earlier, if you're just shouting at people and trying to shout them down and, and be the authoritarian and be the expert, the resident expert, um, try being the resident expert in a room where people have their smartphones out, right? Because they'll check every word you say, man. Every word you say. Be careful what you say. I was at, a, I was at an event at Acadia a few weeks ago, and we were having this having a, a dialogue following chapel. It was a hot topic day, and it was following chapel, and the students were there, and two or three professors were at the front, and people were asking questions, and there was dialogue and discussion and debate. And I opened my mouth and said something. I made a, made a statement, and the kid behind me, who's like 20 years old, is going, da, 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 and repeating word for word everything I just said. He was tweeting it. I'm going, oh, careful what you say. Careful what you say. Um, I think personal authenticity is absolutely crucial for the preacher. You need to be a real human being. 
And it's okay for your people to know that you struggle. I, I love my pastor. He's a, he's a young guy, and I just, I just love his preaching. I love the way he relates to his people. I love that he's full of grace. And yet he's a good preacher and he preaches the word and he talks about sin and redemption and salvation. But he does it in such a grace-filled way. And every Sunday I come away from church saying, he's struggling and knows he's a sinner just like me. Younger adults need to know they can relate to you and you can relate to them. If, you, if you're preaching and you've got it all together, and your life is perfect, Probably you're lying. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, people need to know that you struggle as well, even when you preach. It's okay not to be perfect. Now, that doesn't mean that you air all your dirty laundry in your preaching on Sunday. I saw this quote from Timothy Keller that I liked. He said, we need, to, we need transparency and humility without self-absorption. Transparency and humility without self-absorption. People need to know that you have feet of clay just like they do. Now, just uh, as I kind of wrap things up, I, I really think it's important to tell stories. We, we talked about this, what it's like to live in a, in a postmodern culture where you can still tell stories. And I'm glad David talked about that meta-narrative because I think that's really the story we have to tell. Jesus was absolutely the master storyteller. And yet he, he engaged people. He, when he told a story, he engaged people. They, they connected with his stories right away. So, for instance, when he tells a story about the Pharisee who goes up to worship and he stands to pray and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I don't cheat and steal and lie like those tax collectors. I pay my tithes. I worship and I'm committed. God, and he's telling this story. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're shown a picture of the tax collector who can't even stand before God, but he falls on his face and he, he literally weeps before God and says, God, I am such a mess. Forgive me. For I've sinned against you. Have mercy on me, Lord. And see, Jesus, the master storyteller, tells that story knowing that his audience identifies with the Pharisee, not with the tax collector. They're sitting there saying, yeah, oh, man. And in my circles, I would say, the Pharisee was a great Baptist. He really was a committed, dedicated, godly Baptist church member who was patting himself on the back. And all the people in that audience were saying, yeah, you go, Jesus. That dirty tax collector really is a sinner. And then Jesus' shocking reveal at the end of the story is, who went up from there justified? The good church-going Christian? No. The tax collector. The one who everybody loved to hate. And it's an amazing way that he, he kind of pulled them into the story 
And then at the very end, the reveal completely switched. And some people went away really angry with Jesus. Some people went away saying, I got to think more about this. Some people went away for the first time saying, maybe there's hope for me. And then finally, I just want to say to you that I think we have to connect with our culture. And I love how the Apostle Paul did that. I love how Paul understood that if he was going to proclaim the good news of Jesus, that instead of insulting the culture, he had to know something about the culture and even connect with them on a level that they could understand and relate. And what did he do? He was at Athens, and you know the story how he's, he's kind of disconcerted by by the, the raw paganism and all the altars to all of the gods, and he's really upset about that. But as he's walking around Athens and he sees this one altar to the unknown God, for Paul, a light went on, and he said, that's my end. That's how I can connect with these people. And he stands up and he says, you know, this, this God that you proclaim is unknown. Well, I know this God. Now let me tell you about the God who created the universe. And he goes into this wonderful presentation of the gospel and talking about Jesus. And then he takes it a little step further. And he quotes their poets. Two, two of the poets he quotes. He says, first of all, he says, I'm uh, speaking to the, to the people. Of, I'm going to go down to verse 26 very quickly. Uh, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole world, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And, and so what he did was that he told that meta-narrative story in a, in a few verses, by the way. <laughs> Amazing how compact this sermon was. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That was a quote, a direct quote from one of the Greek poets. Probably several hundred years old. They would identify with it. And then he said, and as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul connects the gospel of Jesus Christ in a beautiful way to this culture that allows them to engage. Now, we know that, that the Stoics and the Epicureans, they love to sit and talk about every new idea that came along and debate it and just discuss it. They weren't necessarily interested in changing but Paul had an opportunity to present the gospel to them in a very powerful and transforming way. Um, I, I want to conclude with a statement from Leslie Newbigin, who was a, a wonderful missiologist. But I think this is true for the church in North America today, regardless of what denomination or stripe you are. He said, the Christian message can fail by failing to understand and take seriously the world in which it is set. We need to be students of our culture and of the world which we live so that the gospel is not heard but remains incomprehensible because the church has sought security in its own past instead of risking its life in a deep 
involvement with the world. Jesus did not call us out of the world. He called us into the world. He doesn't want the world to get into us, but he's called us into the world to engage the culture into which he's placed us. I think we're at a, at a wonderful moment in history. It's maybe a scary moment because everything has shifted around us, and for Christians, it feels like, it feels like we're just this little small group on this big island, and, and we feel like we've lost control. But I think it's a great place to be if we will take the risk of deep involvement with the world. Uh, if if we'd had more time, I would have I would have let you listen to a song. Uh, I've discovered a, a new band recently. What's well, new to me, probably old to some of you younger folks here, Mumford and Sons, uh, <laughs> folk rock band out of England. Loving the, loving their music. Oh man! But what an opportunity to engage people in our culture. Have you read the lyrics to some of these songs? Like Babel, I really wanted to play Babel this morning because there are words like grace show up there about the walls come tumbling down. And I thought, what a, what a point of connection with the culture if we are ready to engage people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Young people are hungry for something beyond themselves. They have no idea what it is that they should be seeking. They're going to question probably everything you say, but what an opportunity we have to engage with the gospel if we'll take the risk of deep involvement. God bless you. Thanks. Can I have the Atlantic Baptist students who are here stand up real quick? If you're a part of the Atlantic Baptist Convention, okay, right there. And uh, Peter, would you be willing to catch them right afterward just to huddle up with them and say a prayer? So if you're here, Atlantic Baptist students, Dr. Peter Reed, right here after the next session. Great. Thanks, guys. Let's take about a three-minute break, four-minute break. We're running a little bit behind. And uh, go ahead and grab a cup of coffee. Use the washrooms. Come on back. Lenny's going to be up at about uh, 10 minutes after 11 and take us right to lunchtime.